Uh, so last week I gave you some uh, life hacks as we started out our, our sermon. If you don't know what a life hack is, I'm sure most of you do, but a life hack is basically a, a creative, innovative, resourceful way of solving a everyday or an everyday problem. Just think um, duct tape on steroids, right? So duct tape fixes just about everything. But uh, if you need another way to fix it beyond duct tape, think uh, life hacks. And so here's a, a, just a couple more that I'll give you today. For example, let's say that you have a tight squeeze in your garage. Either it's a one-car garage or two cars you're trying to fit in. And so it's tight. And every time you open the door, or more than likely if you have kids, every time they open the door, uh, it bangs against the wall. The car door bangs against the wall and hits the garage. Well, here's what you do. Take a pool noodle and you can either cut it in half or you can just put it on there and you can put it against your wall. And now every time you hit your wall, your, your door, you hit it right into the pool noodle. There's the, a, a life hack for you. Or let's say here's another one that you have. Maybe you've lost an earring or a small piece of jewelry and you don't know how to find it. Well, if you have a vacuum cleaner and a stocking or whatever you want to call it, uh, women's you know, pantyhose, leggings, uh, you can put the stocking over the vacuum cleaner and you can turn the vacuum cleaner on and you can find things, you may find some things that you never knew you had. That way you don't suck it up into the, uh, into the vacuum cleaner and it's right there on the edge for you to, uh, to take care of and to find. Lose your earrings, lose your piece of jewelry, easy life hack for you. Well, we are in the midst of a series called Counter Culture. And Listen, we live in a time where it is more important perhaps than any other to learn how to life hack, not just as, you know, people in this world, but as Christians specifically in this world that we live in. Because the reality is, as Christians, we're living in a culture that is not only apathetic to the things of God, but is increasingly more and more hostile to the things of God. And so in the series, we're asking the question, how can we live in the midst of a culture that is so counter to the way that God as Christians, has called us to live? How can we hold on to our convictions without giving in, without pulling away, or without pushing back? And if we're going to be able to do that, then we've got to learn how to think resourcefully and creatively as we navig navigate upstream in a downstream world. And in particular, in this series, we're looking at the life of a man named David, actually a young man named, not David, Daniel, and some things that he teaches us, I think, when it comes to how do we live in Babylon? How do we live in the midst of this culture that is so counter to the way God has called us to live? So one more life hack for you as we get into our lesson. I know a lot of you have problems sleeping. Uh, some of you may have insomnia. Either you have trouble going to sleep or have trouble staying asleep. So I have a life hack for you. Uh, if you have that struggle, I thought, here's a, a, a life hack for you. Download some of my sermons on your phone, okay? Then when you're ready to go to sleep, you just turn on one of my sermons and pretend you're at church. And then within a couple of minutes, life hack, you're, you're out, right? So there's a, there's a, a simple life hack for you. Uh, but I bring that up because here's the reality. It doesn't matter how much money or power you have. It doesn't matter sometimes how, much, how hard you try. You cannot guarantee a good night's sleep. And all the church said amen, right? Uh, and that's where our story of Daniel picks up. If you remember, Daniel and his friends were uh, taken as exiles by the nation of Babylon, and they were uh, most likely made eunuchs and were trained and educated to serve King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of that time of uh, the nation and uh, empire of Babylon. And so we're going to pick up the story. Uh, we worked through Daniel chapter 1 last week. We're going to work through Daniel chapter 2 this week. So Daniel chapter 2, 
starting in verse 1. <coughs> Daniel writes, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. And so he summoned all of his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. Now, I'm not going to read all of this section. If you want to read that, you are more than welcome to do that. Uh, but basically, they said to him, so he brings them, he summons them to him, and they basically say, okay, that's great. We'll tell you what your dream meant. You just tell us what your dream was. And Nebuchadnezzar says, no, that's not how this is going to work. I want to know if you're legit. So not only do I want you to tell me what my dream means, but I want you to tell me what I dreamed. Which you probably would say, like they said, nobody can do that. That, like, we, we, we can give you some, you know, some pointers on what your dream means, you, you, but we can't tell you what it is and what it means. That is impossible. And Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to call him Neb because it's much easier to call him Neb, and I'm going to save about five minutes with how many times I'm going to say Neb, uh, Nebuchadnezzar throughout this story. So Neb, King Neb, because he's got all the power and because he has a temper, he totally overreacts, okay? Verses 12 and 13, this is what it says. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon just because they couldn't not only determine what his dream meant, but tell him what his dream was. He completely overreacts. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent, and here's the important part, the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death as well. Now, Daniel and his friends had nothing to do with this whole conversation in the first part, and yet they're about to be lumped in with the others in the execution order. And once again, if you were with us last week, we read through Daniel 1, or if you're familiar with that, once again, Daniel is caught in the backwash of the consequences of not his sins, but someone else's sins and failures. But one thing that Daniel teaches us is that if you can remember that God is in control, and here's the first takeaway for us, if you can remember that God is in control and that he deserves our first allegiance, then it will help you to keep your fear under control. Remembering that God is in control can keep your fear under control. And so as we read the story, we see that once again, Daniel is calm. He stays calm. He does not overreact like King Nebuchadnezzar does. And once again, he speaks with wisdom and tact and respect. And he asks the king if he can have more time so that he and his friends can go to the king of kings and ask for more wisdom. And by the way, that's a great thing to do when you're in a crisis. Get together with some friends and get on your knees. Get, some, get together with your brothers and sisters in Christ and get on your knees. That's why we need to be connected. That's why we, we, we make it a point to say, you need to be connected. If you're just here on a Sunday morning, I'm glad you're here, but you need to be connected in other ways to your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's gonna be times where you need to get on your knees, not just in your own closet or by yourself, but with other Christian brothers and sisters. We need that because there's gonna be times where you are overwhelmed in Babylon. And you need to get on your knees. And that's what Daniel and his friends did. And so, verse 19, during the night, <coughs> the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and, and raises others up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. 
I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Now, it's interesting to me (coughs) that the first thing Daniel does when he gets this revelation from God is not to go to the king, but to go to the king of kings, to praise God and thank him for this revelation that he has been given. I don't know what your reaction would be, but mine typically would be to go and try and save my life, then I'd have some prayer time, right? If I know that there's an execution order out on my head, I've got the information that can you know, redact this, this execution order. That's probably gonna be my first response and my first action. But Daniel's first action is to lift his hands and his heart up and praise. He doesn't wait to see how this is all going to turn out. He doesn't wait till the end of the story. He praises God right in the middle. In fact, we're going to see later on when, when Daniel reveals this revelation that God, that God has given him to him about what King Neb's dream meant, that it could have had a negative effect, very much so. It, it's not exactly good news for King Neb, the revelation that Daniel is going to bring to him. And yet, that just doesn't matter to Daniel. Daniel had asked for revelation. God gave it. And when he gave it, he praised and thanked God for it because Daniel is an incredibly humble servant of God. And that's why Daniel is never going to point the finger at himself. It would, I mean, just think about what Daniel could have done in this moment. He could have said, look, I'm the real guy. I'm the real deal here. Now, ultimately God, but I, I, you know, God's revealing himself through me. Get rid of all these other guys. They're imposters anyway. And save me and my friends. I'm the one who's telling you the dream and the meaning of the dream in the first place. But Daniel is going to try to save the lives, even of the men who are doing what he thinks is wrong and sinful. So verse 24, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king and I will interpret his dream for him. And so once again, we see Daniel not He's holding his convictions, but he's doing so without holding in contempt those who do not hold his convictions. And if there is anything that you get out of this sermon series, I think that is probably at the top of the list. We don't have to hold in contempt those who don't hold our same convictions. Now, that doesn't go for, A, we shouldn't hold anybody in contempt, okay? But there's a different standard we hold each other to because we have been saved by the blood of Christ. You and I as Christians are called to live this way, called to hold each other accountable. But when it comes to those outside of the blood of Christ, there's no need for us to hold them in contempt. Why should we be surprised, as I said last week, when Babylonians act like Babylonians? You and I are called to be people of love and we can hold our convictions without holding in contempt those who do not hold our convictions. And Daniel is even going to try to save the lives of those that do not hold his convictions because he knows that any insight he has is not because of how great he is, but because of how great God is. He's experienced the kindness and mercy of God. And so once again, he's going to serve God in Babylon and he's going to serve in Babylon for God. So they bring Daniel into King Neb's throne room. Verse 26, the king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replies, no, replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. And underline this part. 
But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Neb what will happen in days to come. You see, when you believe that there is a God in heaven, when you believe that he is in control, it changes everything. Babylon can be a tough place. It can be a scary place. It can be a wicked place. Just turn on the news, right? Sometimes you can walk out your front door. Turn on the news, turn on the radio, read the headlines. We are reminded constantly that Babylon is far from God. But you don't survive in Babylon by focusing on the wickedness and the sin in Babylon. You know how you survive in Babylon? By focusing on the goodness, the greatness, the mercy, the kindness of God. That's how we survive in Babylon. There is a God in heaven, and humble Daniel remembers that, and that gave him courage then to give a very humbling message to the king. So Daniel says, king, to show you I'm legit, okay, because this is what you want, I'm going to show you I'm legit. I'm going to show you not just what the dream means, but what the dream is. Verse 31, your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and baked, or partly of baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed it. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. Then Daniel goes on to explain what the dream means. And artists have tried to um, give a rendering of this, and I'll kind of put one up. Uh, you can flip forward to that. Um, you know, basically what it looks like, and here, here's kind of the, the consensus agreement on, on what that means and what, uh, what Daniel's dream is, is referring to. Now, we know what the gold stands for, <coughs> the gold head, because Daniel says, King Nebuchadnezzar, you are that gold statue. Uh, so the Babylonian Empire, King Nebuchadnezzar, his rule, and uh, those after him fit in that, that top part. Then he says, after you is going to come a, another kingdom, which is not as strong as yours. We know that one was the Medo-Persian Empire. In fact, it showed up at the end of Daniel. Uh, the next one, Daniel says, there's another one that's coming after that. We know that one more than likely was the Greek Empire. After that, Daniel says there's a final kingdom that's coming. Um, most people think that was the Roman Empire, the uh, legs of, of iron. Um, then Daniel talks about the toes. We're not going to get into all of this. Uh, there's several different interpretations of what the toes might be, mixed of iron and clay, uh, some sort of divided kingdom after the Roman Empire, associated with the Roman Empire. Again, there's, there's different theories out there on what, what it exactly is. Here's what we do know. I don't, I don't want us to get caught up in all of this. I just wanted to give you some kind of picture to, to see what's going on. Here's what we do know. No matter how you interpret the dream, what Daniel is saying to King Neb is absolutely stunning. I don't want you to miss the impact of what he's actually saying to the most powerful man of the most powerful empire in the world at that time. He stands before King Neb, ruler of Babylon, and he says, King Neb, the future belongs to God. The future belongs to the God of Israel, the king of kings. He decides the future, not you. 
You are where you are because he has put you where you are. And right now, you're the man, but you are a small part of God's plan. And you are going to spend your whole life, Neb, building an empire that will not last. Because, Neb, you're just a part of the statue. You are not the rock. Pretty bold. And I'm guessing at this point, Neb's wondering, well, what is the rock? And so Daniel goes on. Verse 44, in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the, the iron, the bronze, <coughs> the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And so Daniel says, God is going to set up a kingdom and it's not going to depend on human power. It doesn't need human hands. That kingdom is the one that is going to survive, not yours, Neb. And it's going to come up during that fourth empire. And he's talking about, obviously, as many of us know, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that was inaugurated when God appeared in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. You remember what the angel told Mary when he announced to her that she was going to give birth to Jesus. You remember what he said to her? He said this in Luke chapter one, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now back to Daniel. Put yourself in Daniel's shoes. You know, sometimes it's easy. I, I don't know if you have the same uh, problem as I do. Sometimes it's easy. We know the end of the story. Sometimes it's put, uh, hard to put ourselves in the middle of the story. So just, if you know the story of Daniel and you know how it all turns out, just kind of try and put that out of your mind and put yourself where Daniel is in this moment before King Neb. He has no idea how this king is going to respond. As we've already seen, Neb has a temper. He's willing at the drop of a hat to send out an edict that's going to execute all of the wise men in Babylon. Neb can say, I'll show you who's in charge. I'll show you who's going to last and who's not going to last and completely just kill Daniel. But it's more important to Daniel to honor God than it is to bow in the presence of someone who thinks they are important. And because he honors God while at the same time being respectful and gracious to King Neb, in the end, his courageous honesty was actually a blessing to Neb and to the Babylonians. It says in verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel. I just wrap your mind around what is going on here. And paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings, and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Now, one of the neat undercurrents in the book of Daniel, and we'll see this as it goes on, is that God is chasing Nebuchadnezzar. God is, is, is trying to reveal himself to King Neb. Now, that being said, don't think that just because of what Neb says here that somehow he's found God, okay? He's not quite there yet. But don't think that just because he's not there that God is going to give up on Neb either. But that's a story for another 
day. What I want us to do for the rest of our time this morning is unpack how I think this story can help us live well in Babylon. I've already given you one takeaway. Here's three more for, uh, for you this, this morning. And the first one is this. Real faith is not developed in a place of convenience. Real faith is not developed in a convenient place where faith is just easy. Life in exile demands trust. Living outside of, of a, a, a majority of God's people requires our trust. And trust is developed by the trials that we experience living outside of the majority. Listen, I know it's hard to live in Babylon. Maybe, maybe that's part of the problem sometimes. It's, it's not as hard as it should be, you know, which should tell us something. But it's hard to live out godly principles in the world that we live in. It's hard to live that out in Babylon. I mean, wouldn't it be easier if people just lived like us and thought like us and acted like us? Wouldn't that just be so much easier? But the reality is that while Babylon is far from God, Babylon is a good place for us to grow closer to God. That's a reality. Because it's in Babylon that faith is required to go deep and to grow. The problem is that for a lot of us, we want the end of the story We know the end of Daniel's story. The question is, what do we do when we don't know the end of the story? We want to know how it's all going to turn out, and then, God, I'll give you the credit. What are we doing in the midst of the story when we don't know how it's going to turn out, when it may or may not go the way that we want it to? You probably never heard the name uh, Greg Creed. He was the CEO of Yum!, which is the parent company of, like, Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut. I think maybe another one. Um, But anyways, uh, when I read a story, when he was the CEO several years ago, there's a story about how there were declining sales in Pizza Hut. And so he got his senior marketing team, senior sales team together, and he said, I am going to lock you in a room. Do not come out until you tell me a plan for how we're going to increase sales in Pizza Hut. So they spent nine hours in that room, and they came out with this strategy. Easy beats better. They said, for a long time, we've been trying to sell our pizzas as saying our pizzas are better than the other people's pizzas. But that doesn't work in our culture anymore. Our culture wants convenience, not quality. So from now on, we're going to promote better, or we're not going to promote better, we're going to sell easy. And I tell you that to say, that may work with pizza, although I'm not a big fan of that either, but it does not work with faith. If you want an easy faith, you will not survive in Babylon. If that's what you're looking for, you will not survive in Babylon. If you choose convenience over obedience, if you choose fitting in over standing out, your faith will not last in Babylon. But remember, Babylon will not last either. And that leads to the next takeaway. The future is not up for grabs. Let me say that again. The future is not up for for grabs. Did I say it slow enough for you to recognize that? Let me say it again. The future is not up for grabs. You know why? Because the future is not for kings and kingdoms to decide. And I'll throw in presidents and prime ministers and whatever other leaders you want to throw in there. 
and whatever kingdoms or nations you want to throw in there. You know, we are bombarded with a steady diet of news and headlines and podcasts and programs and political pundits, and it's so easy to get upset and anxious and worried and to feel like every, especially every election cycle, right? We're like, the future's just up for grabs. And I'm, you should vote. That, that's, that's, a, that's a right and a privilege that we have. You should vote. But you should also know as you vote, the future is not up for grabs, people. God has got it firmly in his grasp. The future is not up for grabs. It belongs to him. And that's why it's so important that as believers, we don't get all worked up by the announcements and the boasts and the agendas of the self-important and the self-absorbed. You know, there are only three passages in the Bible where it says that God laughs. Do you know that? Three passages in the, in the scriptures where it says that God laughs. Uh, they're all three in Psalms. One of them is in Psalm chapter 2. Here's what it says. Verses 2 through 4. The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw out the shackles. In other words, God's not in charge. You know who's in charge? We are. We are the authorities. We're going to be the ones who decide the future. And verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. What's that old saying? If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans, right? The one in heaven, enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. What did Daniel pray? He deposes kings and raises others up. And didn't we learn this in history class? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, right? Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Just look at it throughout history. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. That's what human empires do. The kingdoms of the world go by in purple and in gold. They rise, they triumph, and they die. And all their tale is told. But only one kingdom is divine. One banner triumphs still. It's king, a servant, and it's sign across upon a hill. And if you are worried about the future, if you think the future is just up for grabs, maybe, just maybe, you're putting too much hope in a statue. Putting too much hope in a statue. You see, if we're going to survive in Babylon, here's the biggest takeaway for today. Our foundation is not shaken because it is built on the rock. From a worldly perspective, wouldn't you say that the other metals in that vision, in that dream, are more valuable than a rock, right? Wouldn't you say that the other, who wouldn't want to invest in gold and silver more than a rock, right? And yet from a heavenly perspective, the rock is the one you want to invest in because it's the only one that's going to last. And the rock lasts because it doesn't depend on human hands. It doesn't depend on human power or human strength or human economy or human politics or human agendas. And if we are going to thrive in Babylon, we've got to start putting our hope in the rock and not in the statue. Now, I love my country. I love, I love our country. And I am proud to be an American. But I do not wrap the, the flag around the cross. And I do not think that whatever is, is, is best for America is always God's ideal for America. Nor do I think that we have to have, that God needs America to accomplish his purposes, Okay. God is plenty capable on his own of accomplishing his purposes. 
The rock doesn't need the statue's help. Let me say that again. The rock doesn't need the statue's help. Military strength is not the rock. Political power is not the rock. Economic wealth and might is not the rock. And calm and courage come when we put our hope in the rock and not in the latest version of the statue. And didn't Jesus tell us which kingdom to seek first? His kingdom. And our friends, our Babylonian friends, need our witness. A witness that I might add is compromised when we fret so much and worry so much about the statue that they don't want to hear what we have to say about the rock. Don't lose your joy and your courage and your hope because of a statue. Put your joy and your courage and your hope in the rock and you will never be disappointed. Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 12, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and all. His kingdom cannot be shaken. It is forever, and God will have his way. The kingdom of God rocks on, and we can too, even in Babylon.